Good morning. And for those joining us online, good morning or afternoon or evening or whatever day of the week it is that you're watching, uh, participating in and experiencing worship before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Say, we are making our way through the Psalms, began over a year ago doing this. Today we're up to Psalm 95, and I would love for you now to take your Bible and turn with me there to Psalm 95, and a, a few preliminary thoughts as we're making our way uh, to this passage of Scripture. As we noted last week, and we'll reemphasize in the coming weeks, uh, this is part of a, a nine psalm uh, series, 92 through 100, that has its main emphasis being uh, the sovereign one of the universe is to be worshipped. The theme is the Lord is king, Yahweh Melech in the Hebrew. So now, nine psalms, it's a collection of nine psalms that have an extraordinary royal theme to it. And when you're following what's happening, say, in Great Britain and so forth, you know that it seems like the royal theme seems to be dominating the news these days. But what I also want to see and spot with you in this collection is that there is a trilogy. Psalms 95, 96, and 97 utilize the same expression that he is the Lord above all gods. We're going to spot that in our reading this morning. Now, the reason for this is that most likely those that were making their way back to Jerusalem in a pilgrimage were singing such verses. And furthermore, in synagogues around the world, um, this has been a call to worship, this psalm and those that follow. For you see, what you and I are exploring this morning is a particular psalm that is known as the Venita. It means literally, O come. And what I want to draw out for you as we're exploring these verses together is that twice in this psalm, you're going to find this expression, O come, serving as an invitation for you and me to enter into corporate worship. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'll take it down through verse 11. And I want you to be able to see how all of this fits together. It's a natural two division here with the Venita, uh, the O come, which is offered in synagogues around the world and Jewish circles. But for churches that understand the significance of this, this is corporate worship at its utmost. O come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with, with songs of praise. Now here's the reason. For the Lord is a great God. Mark what comes next. On a great king, 
above all gods. The first in the trilogy, above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And now what he's going to do at this point is to dip into the experiences and the history of the Jewish people and to issue an extraordinary warning in the midst of worship. See what comes next. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So at the very end of this little study, we'll also be pondering, what does he mean by entering into this rest? But first, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, you're the sovereign God. We're awed how these uh, nine psalms that draw attention to the Lord is King, Yahweh Melch, um, capture our, our thought processes that you rule over all. You're in control. And when the world seems to teeter and shake, you are the constant in the midst of the variables. You are over it, yet you minister within it. We're awed. Again, in our worship, we recognize we are worshiping the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. We capture glimpses in this passage of the Creator. We embrace what is said about the one who is the Redeemer. We ponder the significance of the one who inspired your word and is the Regenerator, the Holy Spirit. And so we want to come with that sense of the majesty of God in the midst of the fallenness of humanity and seek you in all these verses. So Father, this time is important. So we're asking once again that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen.
as you've been observing and absorbing the news in the recent days, obviously so much of the transference of uh, leadership, symbolically speaking, Great Britain has taken place from Elizabeth to Charles. And as I was processing the various news reports as to who would be involved and be part of um, gathering together in the intimate circles with the new king and be part and parcel of the coronation and so forth. As I was reading and as I was listening to what was being stated by pundits, my mind went back to uh, a conversation that was recorded in another time where a man by the name of Sir Leonard Wood was invited to uh, spend time with the king. And the king was so pleased that, with him that he invited him to dinner the next day. Well, Leonard went to the palace, and the king met him in one of the halls and said, Well, Sir Leonard, I did not expect to see you here. How is it that you're here? And Leonard responded, Did not your majesty invite me to dine with you today? Well, yes, said the king, but you did not answer my invitation. And then what followed was one of the most classic responses recorded in history. When Leonard Wood responded, a king's invitation is never to be answered, but to be obeyed. In the passage you and I are about to explore, what you and I are being introduced to is two significant invitations that come from the king of the universe that have direct bearing upon the way in which we live our lives individually before God, corporately before God, in our worship. If you're watching online at this moment, a tremendous opportunity to enter into worship, no matter where you are, with the fact that at this moment you are before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to draw out two significant invitations that are found here in these verses. These invitations are such that they're not merely meant to be answered, but to be obeyed. And the first flows out of one through five, and we're going to put it like this, that our sovereign Lord invites you, invites me, invites us to first to come and sing our praises to him. Now, I want you to begin to picture the movement of the Jewish people perhaps returning from far-off places such as Babylon, setting, a setting that had been governed by Nebuchadnezzar, by Belshazzar. They'd had their share of kings. They'd had their share of royalty. But now what he challenges us to do in our corporate worship or in our individual worship. Oh, come, 
There's your invitation. Let us sing to the Lord. Now again, in book four, we are reintroduced to the idea of Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the covenantal relational name for God. He desires relationship with you. We are able to enter into a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, saving us from our sins. We're not merely religious people. We are relational people with the sovereign one who rules over all. Oh, come, he says, let us sing to the Lord. And furthermore, goes on to say, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now, the first time the Jewish people were introduced to the idea that God was their rock was in Genesis chapter 49, where in verse 24, God was revealing himself to the, to the sons of Jacob. And when Jacob got to the point of blessing his sons, Joseph in particular, would hear these words, yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the one shepherd, the rock of Israel. This is where it began. This was to offer them and offer you and offer me a sense of extraordinary stability in a world that is filled with anxiety. World War II. The sailor in a ship's thrown upon this rock where he, he clung in danger until the tide went down. Newspaper reporter interviewing him. Didn't you shake with fear when you were hanging on that rock? He was asked. I love the answer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the rock didn't. This is why a believer can have such security, such stability in the midst of the turmoils of life. You've got footing. You've got the opportunity to be able to stand when other people are tripping themselves up over the challenges that they are facing. Let us make a joyful noise. Christians are mocked by joy. Nehemiah would teach us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Show me somebody who has been sapped of joy. I'll tell you about somebody who's sapped of strength. You can experience joy in the midst of hardships because you've got your footing. You've got stability when it seems as though everybody around you is beginning to lose this. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock. Why? Of our salvation. Our salvation. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you know that salvation comes exclusively through the finished work of Christ on the cross. You're up now to verse 2. 
so now to reemphasize for your own sake of worship, he goes on now to challenge us with these words. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. This would be an extraordinary thought. I mean, the exiles making their way back to Israel on a pilgrimage. They would be thinking about the temple. They would be thinking about the curtain. And now what you and I find through Jesus Christ is that the curtain was torn in two, not bottom to top, but top down, giving us access to come into his presence. This is an amazing thing. You have been invited to come into the presence of the sovereign one of the universe. This instills worship. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him. He goes on to say, with songs of praise. Happened in Italy. Walking along a busy street, someone is singing. His voice is distinguishable above the noise. When he is spotted, it's noticed that he had no legs and was pushing himself through the crowd in a wheelchair, catching up. He, he hears this reporter pose this thought. I, I want you to know that to hear singing from a person in your condition gives everyone a lift. And this believer answered with a, a grateful smile. When I stopped thinking about what I had lost and began concentrating at all that I had left. I found much to rejoice in. I may have lost my legs, but I did not lose my song. In the midst of the losses of life, There's a song to be sung. It's in your heart. Let it be expressed from your lips. Because there are people around you that are wondering, how are you able to sing in the midst of what you're facing? And you smile. Because as we're going to notice next week, we are people of the new song. Not some old song, not some recycled song. New song believers who have a fresh experience daily in the presence of the sovereign God. Well, you're up to verse 3 with me, aren't you? And in verse 3 now you are given the reason why you're able to sing this new song. For the Lord, Yahweh in the Hebrew, the Lord is a great God, 
And now, because this is part of the royal collection of nine Psalms, 92 through 100, notice that it goes on to say, and a great king, but mock this, above all gods. Now that would have stirred the hearts of the people in his synagogues around the world where Jewish people have felt exiled and for those that had been held captive, say, in Babylon, and had exposure to all these false gods, to hear and to be able to sing this back to our sovereign one, that he is above all gods, we are now making a verbal statement of testimony that this is not the equivalency to other gods. Furthermore, there is not to be a substitute of these gods for our God, but rather this one that we worship, the sovereign one, is above all gods. He reigns. Now, when you're able to sing this way, Think this way. Live this way. Changes everything, doesn't it? There's a king that reigns. You're back to Peter McKenzie. He was the pastor, of course, who was being shown in Madame Tussauds Waxworks in London, this particular chair where... The guide said, this is the chair in which Voltaire sat and wrote his atheistic pamphlets, unquote. And Pastor McKenzie pointed and said, that's the chair? And then without even seeking permission, stepped over the cord, sat down on the chair, and sang as only an authentic believer in Jesus Christ could sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. And you're able to sing that kind of song. You understand that he reigns globally And yet simultaneously, he reigns over you personally. Oh, does this change worship? You have been given access. You enter into his presence with thanksgiving. You make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. You give him the reason in verse 3, for the Lord's a great God, great king, above all gods, but now... What is interesting is that to further augment his, his argument about being the sovereign over all, he takes us to the time of creation. And here you and I are reminded that in his hand are the depths of the earth. Notice now he's going vertical on us. Now first he goes downward, the depths of the earth, then he goes upward to the mountains. The heights of the mountains are his also. So now we see the depths and see the heights. 
but he doesn't leave it there because he knows you're multidimensional. And so he moves from the vertical to the horizontal. And so a poetical expression of this reality, the sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. You got a little surf and turf going here. But what I also want you to see is that, again, I spot another, don't you, bookending happening. Because in verse 4, it begins with his hand. And verse 5, it ends with his hands. The whole wide world is in his hands, you see. When I graduated from college, my senior paper was on the subject of creation and evolution. How does one who's a science major address this subject within the context of a Christian world view? I wished I'd had at that point in time, because it was an over 100 pages long, my paper, Darwin's Black Box, written by Michael Behe. Some of you know of him. Lehigh University professor of biochemistry, which was my major, written in 93. And uh, we've referenced this, haven't we, on occasion. It's a homey example. And it's the argument for, you might want to write it down, irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. Uh, Dr. Behe uses the illustration of the mouse trap. A mouse trap, I'm now reading from his volume, a mouse trap cannot be assembled gradually. You cannot start with a wooden platform and catch a few mice, add a spring, catch a few more mice, add a hammer, and so on, each addition making the mouse trap function better. No. To even start catching mice, all the parts must be assembled from the onset. The mouse trap does not work until all of its parts are present and working together. Now, when you and I consider the functionality of the universe, the positioning of the earth to the sun, the biochemical dynamics of this creation, we are awed and we are stirred to add it worship. And worship carries with the idea of worth-ship. That this one who is sovereign over all is the creator of all. And he brought complete complexity to this world in the onset. When he would say, it is good. It is good. Ah. It's very good. We'll let the author of the universe make that statement. And so now, even the creation is stirring us to worship our sovereign God. Now, we've said in the first invitation that our sovereign Lord invites us to come and sing our praises to him, haven't we? But now in 6 through 11, our sovereign Lord offers us a second invitation to come and offer our worship to him 
And what he does at this point, because this is a praise song, is that he wants to further develop how praise fits into the whole context of worshipful living. And so, O come, once again, this is the Venita. O come, let us worship and bow down. Now, tying together what four and five are all about with verse six, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. I love the writings in Touch and Live where George Vanderman wrote, a young man, a young stranger in the Alps was making his first climb accompanied by two extraordinary guides. It was a steep, hazardous ascent. But he felt secure with one guide ahead and one following, and for hours they climbed. And now, breathless, they reached for the rock protruding from the snow above them, the summit. The guide ahead wished to let the stranger have the first view of heaven and earth. And so he moved aside to let him go first. Forgetting the gales that would blow across the summit rock, the young man leaped to his feet. But immediately the chief guide dragged him down physically, shouting, You are never safe here except on your knees. Okay. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel, no matter how hard the wind is blowing against you. Let us kneel before the Lord, before the Lord, our Maker. And as I was driving home a few days ago, listening to Air One, all of a sudden this song by Phil Wickham just kind of gripped my attention. I call you Maker. You give me life and eternal spark. I call you healer. You can mend any broken heart. I call you father, faithful father. You finish everything you start. My soul was made to respond. I know you by a thousand names and you deserve every single one. You've, been give, you've given me a million ways to be amazed at what you've done. And I am lost in wonder at all you do. I know you by a thousand names, and I'll sing them back to you. Yeah, sing them back. Sing them back to you. As the exiles are making their way. Can't you hear them now? And you're with them. And you're singing it back to him. And you're given another reason. Draw a line between verse 3 and verse 7 
to extraordinary reasons. Why is this? For he is our God. Now he has shifted from Lord to God because Elohim is the generic uh, name for God known, well it's known in Genesis 1 and 2, as the creator. It's the name for him there. So he's making a creational testimonial impact upon those that are willing to listen. He is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And notice the metaphors are just leaping out of this psalm where you've got him as the rock, you've got him as the maker, you've got him as the shepherd, and so on. He's the great king above all gods. And you're awed, and you're saying, even when winds have blown against me, I, I can grasp what that man in the wheelchair without the legs said. I've lost something of significance, but I have not lost my song, and I'm still willing to sing to my sovereign one. Now he issues a warning. That warning comes, and it's very contemporary. He hits you and hits me with a today. You spot it there? And so for all those now that are meditating upon God's word, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Draw a line between the hearing and the hardening. Now notice that it says, as at Meribah, and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to proof, Though they had seen my work, and they'd seen it, and they'd seen it in Egypt. Now, the first of these names, Meribah, here's the idea to dispute. The second of the two names, Massa, carries with the idea of testing. Now, as the exiles are returning to Jerusalem, perhaps it's there, uh, this is tied to the Feast of Tabernacles. I noted in our insert this morning. This is rooted in Exodus chapter 17, what he's referring to with just a, a, few, a few words. But in Exodus chapter 17, here's the context. The people are quarreling with Moses. And they're saying, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? He rightly lifted it high. The people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses, and what does he do? He calls out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. What does the Lord say to Moses? I love this. Get this. And don't miss the symbolism of this. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. I'm in Exodus 17. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now they're thirsty. We're talking water. Moses used his staff. 
as the symbolic statement that God was at work when God divided the waters. Now he will use that same staff for God to disperse the waters. Here's what happens. I will stand before you there on the rock. You shall strike the rock. Water shall come out of it. The people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? No, the Lord is with you. Check out your heart. Hear his voice. We don't put him to the test. Because in verse 10, you and I are given some historical perspective when God says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, he says to them. And now you say to yourself, I invest time in God's word. I know his ways. But there's a therefore. And what's the therefore, therefore? Well, in verse 11, the psalmist ends with this. Therefore, therefore I swore in my wrath. This is God speaking at this point. They shall not enter my rest. Now, notice that it doesn't say, and they shall enter their rest. They shall not enter my rest. God is taking ownership. Notice that when the creation was completed, the Lord rested. Furthermore, when the Israelites entered into the promised land, we are told that, that, that Joshua and, and company were offered and experienced rest in the land. But it was not the final it was another significant installment still to come. And that rest, the ultimate rest, is still to come for you and for me. Now, I part from my, my friends, commentators, and the likes who argue that that future rest is heaven. From what I see in the scriptures, that future rest is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as we draw our thoughts with regard to that fact, our minds go, for example, to some particular passages of Scripture, such as in Isaiah chapter 11 of verse 10, where we are told in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about the return of Christ and Jesus setting up his reign within Jerusalem. And furthermore, in Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it for this new heaven this new earth. You pull all of that together, that 
means that in that day, in that future day, the Lord is going to extend his hand a second time. The people have returned to Israel, and then rest is offered. This is the dwelling place. This is the resting place, and it is the place in which our Lord rests forever. Psalm 132, verse 14. You pull all that together. And now you see the significance of what God is offering. And no matter how restless your conditions might produce, you have an installment on rest that will lead towards that final installment still to come for those who know Christ as Savior. Chuck Swindoll. When I was overseas, I was working with a man who was under great stress, great pressure, he was a maverick sort of missionary, didn't fit the pattern or the mold of what you would think of as a missionary. His ministry was in great part to soldiers who happened to be on the island of Okinawa. One day I went down to his office. It's a rainy night. Got off the bus. His wife had mentioned to me he was under stress, under pressure. I kind of expected to find the man folded up in despondency, discouragement, perhaps depression, just ready to finish off his ministry and head out. Well, I got off that little bus, walked down the alley about a block and a half, turned right, down another smaller alley to a little hut, a man kneeling on a mat inside. And as I got closer and closer and further away from the street noise, here he was kneeling, singing, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy, thy grace. And then the next stanza. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. My word, I eavesdropped on his private praise service. And as I stood in the rain and looked through the walls of that little cheap hut, I saw a man on his knees with his hands toward heaven, praising God despite what he was going through. That praise service has left an indelible impression upon my life. For you see, this man lived in the kneeling posture. Do you? Let's stand together. So we've entered into what the global community of believers knows as the Venita. The two invitations to come. And so if there are those watching online right now, 
for those that have been physically present in one of these services, but for some reason find themselves on the outskirts in the rain, looking in, but have not yet knelt. Speak to that heart. Now is the time to live life in the kneeling posture and sing. And for all who know you and love you as Lord and Savior, we sing a new song. No matter what we've lost, we know what we've retained. King of kings, Lord of lords, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.